This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. In episode 26, we're getting to know Jackie Ma, who's a UK-based trend forecaster and designer specialising in the world of accessories. She spent eight years as director of accessories at the world's leading fashion trend forecasting company, WGSN, before starting her own consultancy called Trendfields. Consulting to brands as diverse as Amazon Fashion through to advertising agencies such as BMB, Jackie works closely with brands to combine future consumer insights with actionable recommendations and designs. She's also the founder of Good Ordering, an East London bag company that has lifestyle cycling accessories that she started from her own kitchen table five years ago. She designs bags for fashion-conscious, non-lycra-clad cyclists. Jackie's going to get us skilled up today on the politics of trends. Welcome, Jackie. Hello, how are you? Really good. So let's go back a little bit, maybe 20-odd years ago, to your first career. So before you kind of delved into the world of design and fashion in Australia, you actually did a, a different degree, I believe, in business and manufacturing. So could you tell us a little bit about that and what that perhaps taught you in those early days? Yeah, well, um, I guess coming from a second-generation Chinese family, studying design right from high school probably wasn't really an option. My parents were pretty serious about, you know, what kind of jobs were, you know, real jobs and versus, you know, jobs that you probably weren't able to make that much money in. So I did a business degree. Kind of things that it taught me were, you know, just really practical skills like accounting, which I failed twice, but also just the importance of the practical side of running businesses. So, you know, we learned everything from, um, you know, organizational behavior and all that kind of stuff um, to like business ethics. And I think it kind of got me started in the seriousness of sort of, you know, running a business and, and all the kinds of things that you'd have to think about. Absolutely. And I guess a lot of people who are interested in design and fashion and maybe more creative entities don't have that backing. So perhaps it sort of set you up for the future. So thinking a little bit about shifting gears, you obviously then decided to carve out quite a different career and you've had a, um, a good amount of years and accessories. So why did you choose this area versus sort of may- maybe more broadly speaking, women's fashion or other areas of, the- of design? Well, I guess when I went back to university after doing the business degree, I studied industrial design. Well, it's kind of an old-fashioned word for sort of product design. So I studied product design, and then I moved to London from Australia. And the first jobs that I got were actually designing quite hard products like toilets and in trays for desks and really like traditional product, you know, product designing kind of things. And then it's not that I really wanted to get into fashion, but I I was yearning for something that was like a quicker turnaround than like, you know, an airline interior, which was one of the projects I worked on, which you might never, ever see the final product. So part of me really wanted to work on something that I could 
see myself just after you know, maybe a few months or like a season. So that was when I got into designing luggage and bags. So my first projects were to do with were luggage. Um, and then from luggage, it went more into like slightly smaller bags. And then I worked for Puma, which was sports bags. And then from Puma, that's when I started working at WGSN, where it was all about sort of yeah accessories and bags in general. So I guess it was a you know, a little bit of a sliding scale into the fashion world, even though I'd come from a product background. That's so interesting. So I guess in terms of bags, you must know everything about what makes a great bag work and what doesn't. Yeah, I guess um, over the years, I've kind of learned everything because one of the things that I did was go to the factories a lot with my early jobs. So we would, you know, be designing the bags based on what the customer wanted. But then we would also be learning a lot about what was feasible, what was not feasible, the latest technologies in handle mechanisms, exciting stuff. But but most Very importantly, important though, that <laughs> handle breaks when you're, when you're at an airport, that's not going to help you. Yeah, exactly. And just like how, how the industry works and how, um, you know, how, you know, you don't design every single thing from scratch. You, you use a lot of the stuff that's already out there to, to build on and, and the most important thing, I guess, is finding out about other brands that are in the industry. So really learning a lot by all the other brands that are out there and what they're doing. So there is a bit, I guess there's a bit of nepotism in that as well, because I guess, you know, it's partly when we see trends, for example, you know, you go to social media or you, you buy a traditional glossy magazine and you see these images of, from the catwalks of Paris and New York showcasing really specific trends every year, such as, you know, it'd be stacked heel boots one year, distressed denim or even crossbody bags have been very big in the past couple of years for women. So how does that sort of seasonal trend get to be decided? Is there, a, is there some way in which it happens? Well, it's a little bit of give and take. So trends, I kind of think of them as they're either trickle down or ground up. So the trickle down trends come from, you know, top designers and influencers, celebrities and, you know, like a more kind of organized fashion structure. So they're the ones that sort of come down from the catwalks down to uh, the high street. And then you've got ground up trends, which come from, you know, street culture or, um, you know, like music, film, um, and just pe- what people are wearing at festivals and things like that. So before traditionally, it used to be way more a high percentage of trickle down trends. But now we're seeing that actually with Instagram and influencers and celebrities being so influential that trends are coming from all different directions. So I guess in a way it's a bit of a nightmare for trend forecasters because they have to look really outside the traditional ways that they used to forecast trends. It almost seems like it could be a never-ending story really of trends. You could probably be searching forever and find something that's trending particularly with different markets and um, you know different age groups and so forth so for you in in your role how do you decide which trends matter most is it about the demographics who's going to buy the products yeah well basically I think what it's come down to is that you really need to start with exactly what you said the customer so you have to figure out who you actually working out these trends for so it's not really as simple as sort of putting out a report and saying you know, it's all about pointed toes because there's a whole bunch of people who will never, you know, buy into that those trends. So basically, I think it's just about first knowing who the consumer is, who you're designing for, what brands they're into, all the other stuff that they're into, and then thinking about the trends for like very, very specific market segments. So it's a lot more kind of niche and it, it's, it's something that even companies are having their own inter- internal trend forecasting teams now because they've just realized that it's so much more about them and their customers than any kind of like larger trend. 
Interesting. So one one micro aspect, I guess, of design is obviously colour. Colour is really important. And I know Pantone every year have a colour. I think this year it's greenery, some kind of green colour that um, has been decided by Pantone. So why does colour matter so much when it comes to accessories or doesn't it? Say, I know for interiors, for example, you know, that's you see certain colourways which will work or even women's clothing. I know in Australia at the moment it's all about dusty pink for summer and into, you know, winter as well. And I guess does colour make a difference when it comes to accessories or do we just like black bags? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, people do buy, buy, buy black stuff and a lot of brands, you know, do explore these whole colour stories only to sell 80% of their bags in black. But actually, I think the tables are turning a little bit. And actually, my personal opinion is that colour in accessories is even more important because in times where, you know, in recession where people are kind of just buying black coats and black, you know, or dark or safer colorways in terms of um, their clothing the accessories are the kind of treat that they 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 might buy to update their um their wardrobe so it might not just be thinking about leather bags it could be headbands it could be scarves it could be uh, belts and you know all different kinds of accessories so i think that in accessories it's definitely a really really key area for um updating wardrobes and kind of adding newness into people's wardrobes especially now when people are getting a bit sick of fast fashion Interesting. So I guess as a trends consultant, what do you do on a daily basis? Well, I used to pretend that it was like, you know, the best day, the best job in the world. I just sit around reading magazines all day. But um, a kind of typical week, I guess, or a typical day might encompass um, during uh, catwalks or press season, going to press days. It might be going to trade shows um, and reporting back on trade shows. A lot of the time it might be saying, okay, we need five reports done on, you know, uh, the latest hardware trends in footwear and you have to sort of research different buckles and really specific things like that. So it depends on what aspect you're looking at in terms of trends. So we do things like macro trends, which might be looking at trends two years in advance. So we're looking at, you know, film and celebrity and, and p- politics and those kind of trends where you'll research like the bigger shifts in society, but all the way through to ooh, is it rose gold or is it yellow gold that's going to be key for studs in shoes or something really specific? So um, I guess it kind of comes down to like what, how close to the season that you happen to be working on. And in trend forecasting, sometimes even the teams are divided up. So you'll have teams who are only working on six-month turnaround fashion or even three months, and then you'll have teams kind of focusing on a slightly bigger picture so that they can work out what the bigger shifts are going on how fascinating so i guess um with the market you mentioned fast fashion before and i think it's really changed the way in which we consume accessories and all sorts of fashion in some ways and even though a lot of people are sort of fatiguing of it it is still really big i know that you know where we are in australia we only recently in the last few years got h&m and zara and uniqlo and so forth and they seem to be the stores that are packed full of people at lunchtime in the city so how has that changed the way in which we cycle through fashion in terms of trends? Yeah, I mean, there've been there's been a lot of talk about fast fashion is dead and 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 that, but you're right. When you actually, if you go into an office with a load of you know young women professionals, really like in London anyway, you've got ASOS bags coming in like you know five times a day being delivered, and um, this is the thing is that we just can't really help but to to want to experiment with how we you know look and and the silhouettes and people are becoming a lot more interested in fashion because of bloggers and vloggers and instagram 
I know like in, in London now it's all the, uh, everything is off the shoulder and maybe like six months ago or a year ago people just wouldn't necessarily buy into that kind of you know uh, that silhouette and, and even for some people it doesn't even suit them but the idea is that we're so fascinated to find you know to be part of that that gang and to be to be seen to be taking part in in it's like a cultural thing it's not just about fashion so you're right I mean I don't really know what the kind of answer is I think what it what it really has to start with is that the the retailers like the brands need to be more responsible in what they're um dishing out to the consumers rather than you know uh, rely on the consumers themselves because ultimately fashion it's a little bit like crack people are gonna want to you know be a part of that and and find out and you know and, and and I guess it also comes to the different age groups as well Absolutely. And I think you're right. I mean, we had a, we had a program recently in Australia where, um, you probably haven't seen it, but it was all about the war on waste and it was, it was produced by our national broadcaster, the ABC. And it really got a lot of people talking about that idea of all sorts of waste, but fashion was one of them. They had one episode on fashion and there was a couple of, I guess, young girls in their twenties. And one of them basically said she bought something new every day. Because of Instagram, she would never wear the same thing twice. And I just was such an eye-opener. And and, and what messages does that send and what responsibility, I guess, do we have as a society to kind of go, well, actually, how many black tops can you possibly buy or, you know, off-the-shoulder trends or whatever it might be at the time. (laughs) But it was was totally in some ways mortifying to hear that that's how people – you know, because it's only $14 for the top. Why wouldn't I buy one every day? I live at home. I earn a good income. And you can understand how – like you say, it's like a drug. The, the companies can sort of feed that drug. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there are other things coming in that will help change the landscape a little bit, like with this whole sharing economy and people starting to, you know, realise the power of, of sharing and borrowing. And, and we're moving in millennials away more into, you know, accepting that. So hopefully we'll see these models shift and people will be able to get newness and satisfy those cravings, but we can reduce the waste aspect of it. Absolutely. So thinking a little bit more about the company you started, Good Ordering, how did you actually start that? Well, um, I guess I was I was uh, living on top of a bike shop and I was working in trends and, and fashion and I had been designing prior to that. So then when I was working at WGSN, I, obviously I don't actually design anything. I just sort of create reports and um you know, you don't really get that satisfaction of feeling a physical product in your hand. So that was when I started Good Ordering. I sort of had a craving to design bags again myself. And by then I'd, I'd made enough contacts in manufacturing and found out enough about, you know, how what the production process is like that I decided to design my own kind of very small range of bags, which were four styles, um, which were all about the rise of urban cycling. So in London and, you know, cities all around the world, people are starting to get back onto their bicycles and use them to commute. And I thought there was a bit of a gap in the market for, you know, colourful or basically not black bags for, pe- you know, professional people who wanted to cycle to work. So, yeah, that's when I designed that the, that range. And I launched it with a Kickstarter campaign, which was able to, you know, fund the How first production. How much did production. you raise to start that initial uh, capsule collection? The Do first you was, yeah, it was something like £14,000. Wow, that's by significant. Then, yeah, I mean, I'd put some money aside. So I think I'd double, I had 14000 or so saved up as well. So I just needed to make the other half. And and so I pre-sold the bag so people could buy them at kind of half price if they pre-ordered them before they were actually made. 
And it was a really good way to start the business because I was able to see what people would want before actually getting them made. So I could, you know, manufacture what most of the, you know, the colors that most people chose as their rewards on Kickstarter. So yeah, that was, it was a kind of low risk way of um, starting the business. And then obviously like Kickstarter is really big now and and it's helping a lot of smaller businesses get, get off you know, get started, Definitely, it's so. a great way to get some initial seed funding. Yeah. But you've kept the business and your career going at the same time. So how's that managed to <laughs> kind of work? How do you blend the two? Well, yeah, I think that it's very much about blending. So when my son Otto was a baby, we would kind of, he probably couldn't understand what I was saying, but I would sort of say, okay, we're doing one thing for you and then we're going to do one thing for me. So it was always a bit of a, like a team effort that, you know, right down to what we did every day. So I think that it was very much like it kept me sane as a parent, but then it kept me being, you know, quite a, I think, you know, like a decent parent because I had something else that I was also focusing on. So my whole focus wasn't, you know, is Otto eating his vegetables, you know, three times a day. I, you know, I, I, this sounds a bit harsh, but I didn't care as much because I had other stuff, you know, going on in my life. So I think it was just a yeah, team you kept, effort. You get the business kept you sane, as you said, and I guess um, it was probably a good time to do it when you were physically at home perhaps a bit more than you would be if you're doing a, you know, the, the traditional corporate career at the time. So with the business, what do you hope to do with it? Like what's next? You've obviously expanded the range and there's some fantastic kids bags, which we've bought as well. So how do you, how do you sort of keep evolving your own business? Cause it's very different to having a team of people, maybe in a big consultancy environment. It's just really, I guess you. Yeah. I mean, I guess that I'm, I'm sort of, like you know planning my way into working on good ordering more so I I still don't work on it full-time now but I do have people who help me with a certain thing so I really like rely on you know outside people to help me with everything from shipping and logistics to the legal stuff to the accounting and luckily you know society's structured now that a lot of people are freelance so you can really you know run a business using experts in lots of different fields so I guess when I first when I started it maybe like a a year or so ago if someone had asked me I really thought that it was like this big business that I was going to sell for millions at one point in time but when I've been really at those moments when I've been really realistic with myself what I realize is that I actually really love it and I kind of would rather think of it as a really successful money generating hobby than a big business that I'm you know is going to change the world so I kind of I don't, I've taken the pressure off it. So I don't put pressure on the business. It has to do this or that. Like I have targets and goals and, and all that kind of thing, of course, but I've kind of just eased off on, on putting pressure on it and realized that actually I really do enjoy it. So, and I'm learning a lot every single day from, from doing it. So yeah, I guess that's the key for me to, to be able to work on it and still be passionate. That's great. So thinking a little bit about the ethics of trends, I mean, your job obviously involves working perhaps globally across all different kinds of economies and, you know, perhaps going to factories in China and so forth. Do you get much involvement with the the process of how our accessories are actually made? So, you know, things like access to ethical um, manufacturers or, you know, places that might use child labor. I mean, how how does that sit with what you're doing? Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it's really important to understand the whole manufacturing process. So, for, you know, with good ordering, I do go to the factory once or twice a year and, you know, I document it and I write, you know, blog posts that are on my site about, you know, showing the pic, you know photos that I've taken at the factory. So that's really important for me. I think there is a huge piece of work to be done, you know, to do with like 
you know, getting factories and things audited and, and people's responsibilities there. But it's something that I personally haven't like delved further into aside from, you know, my own factories. But one of the other things is that there is a, a misconception about, you know, about how dire and how many, you know, how bad some factories are in different countries. And, and from my own personal experience, it really isn't that bad. And I found myself really defending, like when people would be looking at my bags at a trade show and ask, where is this made? I would find myself kind of slightly embarrassingly saying it's made in China. So one of the things that I've really had to try <clears throat> to do is to really stand up for my factories and, and not feel like there's a taboo or a shame with things that aren't made you know, in the UK or, or locally made, because I, even though I do think it's great to have things locally made, and I do have a range of bags that are uh, made in the UK, ultimately, I also want my brand to be accessible. So if I want to be able to sell a bag for £65 and for people to be able to buy it, you know, if you do the maths, you can't physically get that made. I probably couldn't even get, you know, a tiny little coin pouch made for that price to sell it in the UK. So it's kind of being no, practical as well. People do vote with their wallets. I often think that, you know, even in terms of, you know, I have bought things and continue to buy things maybe from, from the fast fashion outlets, not every day, clearly, but, you know, do buy things because at the end of the day, it's what you can afford and you decide you will pay for a product. Mm-hmm. And that's to be successful. That has to meet in the middle with what I guess the producers are actually supplying as well. Yeah. So, what sort of hacks have you learned to become that sort of, I guess, successful accessories expert? Are there any kind of key learnings that you could share with us about, you know, what makes the business work for you? Well, on the kind of trend forecasting side, I think that just being naturally inquisitive and being opportunistic all the time. So, uh, you know, looking at new brands and noting them down and, and having systems where you can actually remember things because obviously there's so much going on so I do have little systems like you know google sheets where I kind of just note down you know new brands that I want to keep an eye on things like that don't trust that um you know making systems for yourself is definitely a good one um when I've been giving advice to other people who want to get into the trend forecasting industry what I say to them is like is don't wait if you want to forecast trends then just start doing it now you know People can do it through writing a blog or starting a certain Instagram based on that. So a lot of people sort of wait to, you know, to, to do these kind of things. But I think that it's a it's a process that you can kind of train yourself right from the beginning. Yeah, in terms of like just hacks in life in general, it's pretty much like coming up with little systems to remember things, you know, like having... What would be a good example of a system that maybe you wouldn't have had when you maybe started good ordering that you would definitely swear by now that you couldn't live without? Okay, so... Well, I have like or multiple any programs or apps that you use. I always, I'm always curious to know with successful people, you yeah. know, what are their little, <laughs> Just little top three things right they now. have going on in a day. Yeah. So Instagram is, is a really big thing for me. And also when I'm busy or when you can like have, you know, a few moments here and there, I really believe that um, don't wait for you until you've got half an hour, an hour, like the amount of things that you can get done in like 10 slots of one minute is actually really big. So I have um, Instagram accounts that I kind of, use for the different things and then based on the things the 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 brands that I follow that's kind of a little system and then it's really basic but just using sort of like the iCloud and Google notes so 
if I take a picture of something on my phone because I don't have loads of memory on my phone, I'll, I'm hooked up to Google Drive on my phone and I have loads of subfolders. So if I take a picture, rather than like leaving it on my camera, I'll upload it directly onto the appropriate Google Drive where I can look at oh, on my I computer can. later on. Yeah, and That's I even really do with cool. receipts. So if I'm on expenses and I take a photo of like the post off, you know, everything is like doing it right there and then. And one person said to me, you know, when you have your to-do list, if you've got anything on your to-do, if you're about to write something on your to-do list that will take you less than two minutes, don't write it down, just do it right there and then. And I, I'm sure like people, you could kind of uh, argue the opposite as well. But I, I guess just using my phone as a way to 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 like funnel off bits of information into the right place at the right time. The other uh, um, hack that I use is a, uh, it's a program called If This Then That, I-F-T-T, and you can set they're called recipes or formulas. So for example, one of them is like every time I take a photo, it puts it on Pinterest. I mean, that's a bit extreme. And you can nominate a certain Pinterest um, board, or you could say every time I post something on Instagram, it will post it as a proper picture on Facebook as well. So you can do all these things that save time. Um, you can even set alarms. Like I used to set a radius from work. Whenever I leave a certain radius from work, it will text my partner saying, Jackie is on her way home now. And that will save me, you know, two minutes of writing to my partner, I'm on my way home now, which which I found I was doing the same thing every single day. So like, it sounds a bit like, you know, geeky, but like, there's certain things that you can just automate. And I, I really feel like just being able to steal like a few minutes here and there, that's when you can, you know, you, get things going and, and that's what's it helped me up really. multitask. You don't have to do when you get home means that you, I guess you can be focused on your family or whatever you want to be doing socially exactly. and not be thinking about all the work stuff that might be building up. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm a big believer that uh, people don't sort of get to where they are without some sort of mentors or inspirational figures either formally or informally in their lives that they've kind of drawn inspiration from or been taught along the way. Do any come to mind for you that you – think of fondly and that you can kind of share with us what they taught you well yeah I've got like they're, they're not always really specific people but more recently uh, there's a woman called Emma Jones who's the founder of a company called Enterprise Nation who helps startups uh, especially in the UK it's all about sort of they'd run this huge festival called Festival of Female Entrepreneurs and then do these trade missions one of which I'm going on this weekend to New York um, and it's all about helping small businesses and in all the kind of interactions that I've had with her, one of the things that I've learned from her is that you've just got to put yourself out there and sell yourself. Any opportunity that you have to plug yourself or your brand, not in a really, you know, obviously you have to do it in an appropriate, tasteful way, but don't be shy and don't think that people are going to come to you and knock on your door and, and, and say, Jackie, would you like to be featured in, you know, the Sunday Times? You've got to actually get out there and 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 try to sell yourself. And that's one thing that I think women have a lot of trouble with. And the, all the kind of women figures, you know, that, I, that I've kind of come across are, that can do that in a very balanced way, you know, I just have so much respect for them. And that's kind of how I would li like to be myself. That's great advice. I think sometimes you're right, we do shy away from it. And my career is in PR, so I'm all for people putting themselves out there. But it doesn't just happen by osmosis. You're right. People generally have to actually put themselves front and center and I guess willing to be a bit vulnerable in that too and, you know, yeah. share their story as much as the success stuff, all the other bits and pieces that come with that journey. 
So if we could just finish off um, by sharing perhaps your top sort of insights for listeners who are keen to understand how to get ahead in the politics of trends. Is there any crystal ball? Is there any sort of top three trends we need to be thinking about or any advice that you would have for anyone interested in your in your line of work? Uh, yeah, well, I guess in, in trends and like in kind of design in general, the key things are to distill the data that you're kind of being fed every single day. So as, if you can kind of start to have an opinion about things and, you know, summarize things in your head. So say you're walking down the street and you see all these different things, you could turn around to your friend or and say, you know what, I'm noticing a lot more red, you know, in fashion these days, or why is this whole thing about off the shoulders? Where do you think it's going? I think that next summer is going to be dead. You know, like making conclusions and really trying to distill information like in little bits and pieces where you can will start to help you realize that you've got an opinion and that opinion is really important and that you're actually analyzing things rather than just absorbing stuff. And I think that is really the key because I actually with all this social media and, and everything going on, what we're becoming really bad at is um, filtering and having opinions about stuff. No, that's great advice. Well, if you do want to connect further with Jackie, I'll have some details of uh, Good Ordering Her Business and her LinkedIn profile on the show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network, your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.